Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. This is Pod Save the UK. I'm Coco Khan. And I'm Nish Kumar. And welcome to the place where progressives come to rage. But also, hopefully, to find some solutions to the state we're in. This week, we're saving the UK from Matt Hancock's excuses, from overpaid supermarket bosses, from all-white, all-male by-election candidates, and from cricket. And bringing us hope, John Humphreys, once the BBC's scariest political interviewer, is here to teach us some of the tricks of the trade. So, a uh, bit of a bit of a mad week, isn't it, Nish? I mean, uh, you've been in Glastonbury thinking about uh, Rick Astley and his Smiths covers. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the outside, I've been thinking about Russia and uh, the hot dog to mercenary pipeline, <laughs> as exemplified by Yevgeny Prigozhin. It was weird being at Glastonbury and sort of feeling in the background going, is Russia about to be subject to a hot dog coup? (laughs) Also, it was one of those things where you sort of look at it and go, well, there's no good end to this situation. You know, like Prigozhin does not seem like the best gentleman in the world. Um, Putin, as we know, is not the best gentleman. And you sort of go, this is an absolute alien versus predator, whoever wins, we yeah, lose situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, quite a sinister background to an otherwise wonderful weekend. But when you got out of your tent and you walked past the hot dog stand, how did it change things for you? Apart from the uh, potential spectre of the collapse of Russia, uh, it, it was a and 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 a guy with a private army getting access to nuclear weapons. Glastonbury was great. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you where people really don't want to have their buzz killed by me talking about serious world events. Glastonbury. Oh, really? That's the last thing. I, someone on MDMA does not want to hear about, you know, mercenaries getting their hands on nuclear weapons. Have you, you've seen that meme, haven't you, of the guy in the club talking into the girl's ear? Yeah, that was me to everyone <laughs> at Glastonbury. You just whispering, you have Jenny Prigozhin to let the people try to vibe. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was a, a very, very deeply uh, strange news story happening in the background. Um, otherwise, Glastonbury was wonderful. I had a great time. Mm-hmm. Young fathers were incredible. Loyal Carner was incredible. Good to see a, another Croydon boy up there. Yeah. I love watching Croydoners headline Glastonbury. It was funny Stormzy because... in 2019, Loyal Carner 2023 is wow. exciting for me. The Croydon stage. Yeah. Who needs Bots Park? <laughs> You've got the pyramid. It was funny from the outside as well because I was, I've been to Glastonbury the past maybe five years, but didn't go this year. So I was able to, in real time, see the Glastonbury discourse on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, right, yeah, And yeah. you're much better off being at Glastonbury than seeing the discourse. Yeah, and yeah. And the discourse generally goes like this. I'm not at Glastonbury, so anyone who is, is a bastard. And it's the worst year of Glastonbury <laughs> yeah, ever. The year yeah. that I wasn't at Glastonbury was the worst year. And All of the years. And everyone that went is a dick. <laughs> and I'm not there, so it's really shit. <laughs> what did you do? Oh, I went to the beach. You know, I've got this thing at the minute because my flat's so unbearably hot. So any opportunity I can to get to the coast, I do. So I just, yeah, swam in some human (laughs) feces. 
your commitment <laughs> to engaging with the news is leading you to swim near human shit. <laughs> Listen, people want journalists who can do the tough jobs, <laughs> who can literally get in the shit. And I will do that for journalism. <laughs> OK, this week we saw one of the key political figures during the pandemic take the stand at the public inquiry into the government's handling of COVID. The former health secretary, Matt Hancock, criticised the UK's pandemic planning ahead of COVID, saying it was too focused on dealing with deaths rather than averting them. The absolutely central problem with the planning in the UK was that the doctrine was wrong. The doctrine of the UK was to plan for the consequences of a disaster. Can we buy enough body bags? Where are we going to bury the dead? And that was completely wrong. Of course it's important to have that in case you fail to stop a pandemic, but central to pandemic planning needs to be how do you stop the disaster from happening in the first place? How do you suppress the virus? What he failed to do at any point in the three hours of evidence was take any personal responsibility, repeatedly blaming systems that were already in place. And though he did say he was profoundly sorry for every death, at no point did he admit to actually doing anything that he might need to apologise for. He did acknowledge that his apology would be hard to take. Oh, thanks for that, Matt. And uh, that fact was certainly brought home to him when on his way out, he approached the public gallery and attempted to apologise to the families who'd lost their loved ones only for them to turn their back on him. Outside, he was confronted by a man dressed as the Grim Reaper, Charles Persinger, who lost his wife and his mother to coronavirus just one month apart. As Hancock got into his car, Persinger, in full Grim Reaper outfit, shouted sarcastically after him, I'm a big fan of your work. There's going to be a lot more questions for Matt Hancock to come um, once we the inquiry actually gets into the phase of questions around what happened mm. once the pandemic had actually started. Um, but, you know, some of the details that are coming out are so unedifying and concerning. He even said that a disorganised Brexit had posed a very real and material threat because he diverted staff and resources to prepare for it at the expense of pandemic planning. In 2016, there had been a huge pandemic simulation that had found that the UK's plans were not sufficient to deal with a pandemic. It was called Exercise Cygnus. But when it came to the outbreak, 14 of the 22 recommendations made as a result of that were not put in place due to health department staff and resources being diverted to prepare for a no-deal Brexit. And, you know, it, that feels very difficult to swallow, yeah, you know, as, as a nation. You know, what, why on earth were we diverting our resources away from pandemic planning at that point? I'm not surprised that the apology is hard to take. I mean, for a start, how can you apologise for the, that scale of kind of horror anyway? You know, a, a, an apology is never going to be enough. But nonetheless, you know, this constant blame of the system. Bruv, you are the system. Yeah. You are the health minister. Like, I hate it when people in power use the language of the kind of powerless. I think it's so, so gross and mendacious and, you know, and if it is true, let, let's just pretend for a minute that it is true, that it was completely outside of his power as the Minister for Health to get control of this. You know, he was talking about how the decision around social care wasn't his, that, that's actually for local authorities. Whatever, man, it's a crisis, do something. But even if that was the case and that he was powerless on things, what's the point of democracy? 
What's the point of voting people in if actually in front of the biggest crisis of our nation? Oh, I'm sorry, the system can't the system can't be flexible. Like, I mean, it's really we talk a lot on on this show about faith in politics, and if you saw that, I don't think it would do anything for your faith in politics. And look, I mean, we're in this situation where you know conservative ministers are just blaming other conservative ministers. I mean, I feel like there's a heavily implied blame on David Cameron and George Osborne here. After Cameron and Osborne previously gave testimony to the inquiry saying that they'd left the service in an impeccable condition, Matt Hancock is essentially saying that he inherited something that wasn't fit for purpose. So, I mean, there's a huge number of people passing blame to each other. And what we're not getting at the moment is any sense of how we need to fix this and what actually went wrong. It's just a bunch of people passing the buck around. Mm. So let's turn our attention to another crisis because there's just not enough. Uh, it's the cost of living and what's being called greedflation. As we record this on Wednesday, the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is meeting five major industry regulators to look at whether companies are simply lining their pockets rather than passing on the effects of a slowdown in inflation to their customers. That would be in the form of lower prices. Among those in the firing line are supermarkets, which denied acting like a cartel when bosses were quizzed by MPs on Tuesday. Here's Labour's Andy MacDonald on the Cross-Party Business and Trade Committee addressing a question to Rian Bartlett, Food Commercial Director for Sainsbury's. Uh, and the Chief Executive, I think that's Mr, Mr. Roberts. Um, he's paid almost £4 million in, in, in bonuses on top of his uh, salary. Uh, you know, and I'd really like to know how they... You justify that in the in the midst of a cost of living crisis. Um, I think if if you look at Mr. Roberts, that's 4.9 million, 408,000 pounds a month, 94,000 pounds a week, 2,298 £2, pounds an hour, and workers are paid 11 pounds an hour. I mean, you know, how is that justifiable when people, the people who work for you and the people who come into the stores, are suffering from a grotesque cost of living crisis now. How can that possibly be justified? Well, as a listed company, you'll know that all of our board directors' um, salaries are published. Um, They're set by the REMCO. I don't sit on the REMCO. I don't have any remit over setting any of those salaries. Um, So I can't really comment any further on that today. do you not get the point that you know the, this, this discussion is couched around a, a cost of living crisis, and yet you know I've got to say the chief executives across the board are in the same ballpark in terms of their 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 their, their pay. Do you not, do you not understand how that sits with the general public that these sorts of wages are being paid, and you tell us that your purpose is to provide the most reasonably priced food for, for your customers? <coughs> and yet dividends are paid out and these salaries at this level. Does that not chime with any of you? You can make football tickets cheaper if they pay the players less. No, that's just absolutely, utterly staggering, quite frankly. So, look, the fact that there was no uh, direct response to that question kind of says it all here. Uh, I mean, £4 million bonus payments. I mean, what is the bonus for? (laughs) uh, I don't understand. When... If you look at the, the, you know, the raw materials of a supermarket, which is, you know, the food and produce that they're buying in, if the prices of that are going up, then 
and they're passing all of the costs over to the consumers, then why in the name of God are their executives still getting £4 million bonus payments? Absolutely. Like, what was the target that they met? Was it one in seven people not having enough money for food? Was it that food and non-alcoholic drink prices were up 18.4%? What was the target? What was it that meant they could have the bonus? And the thing is, this is having you know, real world consequences. Like exactly what you said, Coco, you know, one in seven people, the Trussell Trust, the food bank charity has said this week, one in seven people face hunger in the last year because they don't have enough money. And in the meantime, I, I don't know, I don't know how much more the case can be made that there needs to be some sort of attempted price control. And, and listen, I know that it's easy sometimes to dismiss those kind of things as the talk of, you know, the chattering classes, the agitated leftists. But I am going to quote from you from something that the International Monetary Fund have published this week. Those well-known lefties. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, I I was not expecting this. Uh, It's a kind of study of a contribution to annual change in consumption. So it's a study of... uh, profit and where that's being passed to. And so far, they found that Europe's businesses have been shielded more than workers from the adverse cost shock. And in this article, uh, it says that there needs to be more attempts to coax firms to accept a compression of the profit share so that real wages can recover at a measured pace, essentially saying that companies need to accept less profits so they can pass some of that money back to their employees. And I mean, I... I don't know how you can dismiss that from the eye. It's not exactly a, you know, it's not exactly a bastion of anti-capitalist thought. But the IMF, <laughs> I imagine, I'm sure it will be dismissed as well. They're the international Marxist friends now. <laughs> but if even the IMF are saying that companies need to accept a squeeze in their profits, yeah. then surely we're sort of through some kind of looking glass here. Now, this crisis is affecting everyone. So there was a quote from one Conservative MP that said they'd seen a serious deterioration on doorsteps in the last fortnight, driven primarily by those changes to mortgages. And the quote is, I have constituents in detached 1990s homes who have never thought about politics who are now being hit hard. I mean, you know, of course, our politics would tell you that if you have a section of society that are incredibly impoverished, that will come home to roost on all of us. Um, and I think it's finally happening. So I, I, I like to think that now the, the politics of poverty is going to take centre stage. Yeah, and I'm afraid when Rishi Sunak, uh, a man whose net worth is in the vicinity of £900 million, tells people that they need to hold their nerve through this, he is proving himself to be as useful in this crisis as an igloo in the desert. Did you see Keir Starmer? He mentioned that in one of his chats with the New Statesman. He yeah. was like, my mortgage costs have gone up and Rishi Sunak can't understand that because he clearly doesn't have a mortgage. I thought, fair enough. You know, he also gets paid a lot more than many people can yeah, sure. but he still has a mortgage. So <laughs> um, I thought that, you know, I think it's fair to say, I don't think that's the politics of envy to point that out. I think that's just like fair play. Speaking of the Labour Party, uh, some Labour news this week uh, that's slightly flown under the radar, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Five crucial by-elections that are potentially going to be held uh, over the next few months and they've announced the candidates, Coco. Yes, they have. And those candidates all have one thing in common. They, uh, favourite colour is red. (laughs) Favourite flower is the rose. No. Favourite brand is simply red. Favourite brand is simply red. (laughs) 
Favourite Ninja Turtle is Raphael. They love the thought of coming home to you. Is that, is that simply right? <laughs> yeah, that's simply right. <laughs> yeah, just joking, just joking. It's, it's basically they're all dudes. They're all men. Sausage Fest. Sausage Fest. What, we talk honky sausage fest? <laughs> they are all white men. Ooh, yes, correct. honky sausage. Correct. <laughs> Holy hell. I mean, I'm not the only one that's annoyed about it. Uh, several female Labour MPs are reported to be. Shadow Community Secretary Lisa Nandy was asked by Sky News if it bothered her. Here she is. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's something that we take very seriously in the Labour Party. I myself was selected on an all-women shortlist. People say now I would have been selected anyway, but the truth is that until and unless we change the perception of what a Member of Parliament looks like, um, that wasn't going to change. We've reached the threshold with the um, being allowed to use all women shortlists again. But for me and others across the Labour Party, it's incumbent on us to go out and make the case for why we need more women and more diversity in Parliament, and particularly at local level. If we're going to affect the biggest transfer of power out of Westminster and Whitehall in modern British history, which we are, we need to make sure that our mayors and our council leaders and our cabinet members are representative of the communities they serve, and we're absolutely committed to doing that. So as it stands, as uh, Lisa Nandy was outlining there, Labour has reached parity. You know, 51% of the UK are women. I think it's 52% of Labour MPs are women. That is a result of a roughly two-decade-long policy of all women shortlists. They were very controversial at the time. And because they've reached parity, as we can see, they don't have them anymore. <laughs> I mean, I am concerned that the first glimpse of not having these all women shortlists, that those numbers are going to retreat. Yeah. Yeah, if you're trying to make the case against quotas, this is not helpful to you. And I, I, I don't, you know, people don't like quotas. And I understand that there is an instinctive feeling that, well, you know, it's about equality and we've just got to make sure that everybody... But quotas fucking work. You know, it they work. And I, I'm confused as to why we're not pursuing them more actively in politics because we, we want, if we want Westminster to be more effective in terms of delivering what people across the country need, people across the country have to be represented in Westminster. That's, there's no two ways around it, really, are there? Yeah, and I mean, look, representation, we've talked about it before, it's a really blunt instrument just because you yeah, have lots it, of women in the party doesn't mean that women's issues are going to necessarily be front and centre. I mean, yeah. to be fair, we've kind of seen that with the Labour Party now. They yeah. may have 52% of MPs are women, but if you look at their five pledges, none of them are sort of focused on women. So, you yeah. know, it's, but at the same time, if you don't force it, Quite yeah. clearly, naturally, it's not going to happen. Um, we, all, I think, we all have this idea that like a quota is a a thing that we do in the interim until it sorts itself out. I guess my concern is how long will it take to sort it out? Yeah. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen. Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. 
Our patented bedding includes everything you need. A fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Bettys.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. So a month ago in our third episode, we launched our Chat Shit Get Banged, our campaign to stop politicians lying. Since then, Boris Johnson has been effectively kicked out of the House of Commons for doing just that. Is it a coincidence? <laughs> Let's just leave it there. Let's just leave that <laughs> thought to mull. <laughs> this month, we're turning our attention to the fourth estate, to journalists and asking the role that the media has in keeping our politics honest and accountable. And who better to help us than a broadcaster who was the scourge of politicians but for more failed, than... But failed at watching <laughs> the challenge you have just set. <laughs> Oh, fa- failure seems a bit harsh, doesn't it, John? No, nah, moderate, really. <laughs> he had a couple of wins on the way. He's uh, oh, the yeah, former presenter count. of the UK's uh, most important radio news show, BBC Radio 4's The Today Programme, John Humphreys. John, uh, welcome to the show. Only 33 years on the programme, so I was just getting the hang of it. <laughs> just. Um, if you'll indulge us for a moment, John, uh, we've got a lot of international listeners and we want to give them uh, some context mm. uh, for people who uh, might not be familiar about your career because it is uh, incredibly illustrious, Coco. Right. So this is what you need to know about John Humphreys. He started work on a local paper in South Wales when he was just 15. He's covered some of the biggest stories across the world, including the resignation of President Richard Nixon. He's won pretty much every award going. There's no point listing them all. He spent three decades as the most feared, respected and sometimes Times disliked political interviewer on the BBC. He also spent 18 years putting the fear of God into civilians as host of the BBC TV show Mastermind. And yep. he, he variously been described as the rudest man in Britain, the BBC's Rottweiler-in-Chief and a courageous interrogator. And famously, the former Labour Foreign Secretary Robin Cook said, the only thing that keeps me awake at night is the prospect of being interviewed by John Humphreys in the morning. <laughs> you solved the problem by not turning up. <laughs> <laughs> John, now that we're sat across from you, you seem absolutely charming. I'm delightful. <laughs> Everybody says that. All my 17... 17- Former wives and my ex-bosses, <laughs> they all say this. <laughs> no, well, you're different. When there's a microphone, a live microphone in front of you, you are different, aren't you? I mean, if you're not, yeah. I think you're a bit weird, really. I'm just interested in this because, like, I'm from a generation who sometimes find the adversarial nature mm. of politics and the discourse and well, the commentary and you write around for it. The Guardian, so, uh, yeah, quite. We sometimes don't you really want to be like nice that. to everybody. <laughs> Not to Tories, John. <laughs> I was about to say. But so, do you think that actually, like, genuinely, can I infer from that that you think that that's what listeners want? That they need you to really go for these politicians, like, as you were once described, a Rottweiler. This is going to sound breathtakingly arrogant. It is breathtakingly arrogant. (laughs) But when I sit or sat in front of the microphone to interview a politician, I wasn't saying to myself, is this what the listener wants? Ah, interesting. Because if you do that, what listener do you have in mind? Do you have in mind the, the little old lady who has only a passing interest in politics of any sort, and there's nothing wrong with that. Or it might be a 17-year-old kid who is angry all the time and wants you to sock it to them and prove what hypocrites and how they've been 
betrayed by them. They are. Uh, you can't do both. You have to find something in the middle. No, because if you find something in the middle, it's bland. So what you do is you deal with what you've got. But I don't have a standard approach of mm-hmm. any right. sort. I deal with what is in front of me. Yeah. And is it just that their obfuscation, their avoidance just makes you angry? And that's sort of why those interviews famously go that way? <laughs> Do you know, I, I, you, you'll laugh this possibly or dismiss it. Um, but I don't think I did get angry very often. Occasionally, <laughs> of course, frustrated is, is, yes, is a much better right word. Yeah. But I don't think I got angry. I never actually, I think, no, there will have been occasions, but I didn't lose my temper. If you do that, you've lost, haven't you? Right. You've lost the argument if you lose your temper because you've, you've got to be at least reasonable enough to be, to, to be able to say after the interview, I was fair. You see, I, uh, and Andrew Marr, when he left the BBC, announced that he was leaving the BBC and going to LBC, which, of course, I adore and worship because I work for Global Now, classic FM, <laughs> not new. Holding those composers to account. Yeah, yeah. Holding those, you know, that bloody Beethoven, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. What did he uh, ever do? Uh, well, uh, precisely <laughs> posturing all these, you know, wrote a few tunes. Anyone write a few tunes? There's a tune. And uh, he was definitely wrote them, but whatever, we're not impressed. Wrote, so how would he have known in any case? But no, Andrew said when he left the BBC, he was glad to do so after the many years that he was there because he wanted to get his voice back. And I wrote a piece for somebody, the spectator, I think it might have been, um, yes, it was, that said, in essence, he hadn't lost his voice at the BBC. Now, it's perfectly true that he couldn't sit down and write a column that said, Boris Johnson must be fired because he's a stinking liar. Yeah. I mean, you could say that now and everybody would applaud, wouldn't they? They wouldn't take notice. But he, he couldn't have done that. What he could have done and what he did, because he's a pro and a very, very good interviewer, he asked the questions that he wanted to ask. Now, obviously, he would often talk about those questions to his producer or his editor, just as I did on the Today programme. Not always, but sometimes, quite often. And therein lies your opinion as it were. I mean, it isn't an opinion, of course. If, if, if you say, for instance, to Tony Blair, um, you are going to send troops into the most dangerous corner of the globe on a lie, that isn't actually you making a statement. If you raise your voice a little bit at the end of the sentence, you can define it as being a question. And I asked that question of yeah. Tony Blair a thousand times, a thousand times, slight exaggeration, but but nonetheless, you are as if if you're doing your job properly as an interviewer, and admittedly, if you've been doing it for a little time, and I had been doing it for quite a long time, and and if you have a tiny bit of respect, if you've earned your crust, as it were, then you can ask whatever questions you like within reason, of course, but you can ask whatever questions you like, and I always did. I never felt. I have lots of strong feelings about the BBC and where it's gone wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I never felt I was being um, trammeled in any way. Mm. I, I wasn't. And I talked, I had some absolutely wonderful editors while I was at the Today programme. Um, of course, I would talk to my uh, editor about the line of questioning that we would take, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're sitting in the studio with the Prime Minister or whoever it is opposite you, and you are live, you can't consult with the editor. And if the 
prime minister says something really surprising, you're on your own. And so you should be. And that's the way it is. You are, you are a, a, a professional interviewer who knows roughly what he is doing and has a competent editor, has his or her own voice, whatever Andrew might say. We are seeing an increasingly partisan media. And listen, I, we should hold our hands up and say we're part yeah. of that, the kind of partisanship within the media. Now, this is a podcast where we Good. absolutely set our stall out as having a certain, uh, you know, set of values and uh, my, my voting record, which is one of the least imaginative in human history. But do you still stand <laughs> Let me by... Have guess. No, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> do you still stand... It's you, st Kip, John. Of course it is. That's silly of me. I jump to conclusions. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you still stand by impartiality, particularly at the BBC, as being something that is still worth defending in that... Because I think sometimes people have been frustrated with maybe, for example, on the issue of the climate crisis, the sense that there has to be some representation of the view that mm -hmm. it, it doesn't exist. Balance is everything, yes. How important do you think the principle of impartiality is at the BBC still? Well, the first thing to say is you slightly apologise for being partisan or biased. Good. No biased media... No democracy. It is that simple. If we didn't have The Guardian, and you won't like me for saying this, I'm sure, but nonetheless, <laughs> and The Daily Mail or The Telegraph or whatever it happens to be, we would not have a balanced democracy. Yeah. It's essential. And people say, oh, shut the bloody Daily Mail down, whatever, whatever. That's a rubbish. Now, when you talk about the BBC, it is different. We have an we, so I'll never get out of it. <laughs> I was there for a modest 52 years of, of, my, of my entire career, and I, it's going to be me, we forever, isn't it? Yeah. But they, they, they have an absolute responsibility, duty, duty to be impartial. There was a story yesterday, strangely in Deadline, which is a kind of trade and industry magazine for the entertainment industry in America, about Tim Davey uh, being in dialogue with Polly Payne, who's the Director General of the Department for Di Digital Culture, Media oh, and I Sport, saw something about on that. the day of, the, of Gary Lineker's suspension. So there was mm. contact with Polly Payne uh, in the morning um, to set up a more substantive meeting in the evening after Gary Lineker had been suspended. And I, th there is no denial that the conversation did not feature Gary Lineker, but we should say that both parties are denying that there was any undue influence uh, exercised on the BBC by the government. Is, is that something you ever came across? Is that political pressure from the sitting government of the day, whichever political party it was, and you worked through Conservative and Labour rule? Is there a concern amongst people like yourself about political interfer interference, direct political interference in the BBC? I think there's bound to be, if only because the government, effectively the Prime Minister, decides who the next Director General of the BBC is going to be. That's yeah. because they decide who the next governing board, they used to be the governors and so on, and it's all different now and it's going to change again, should be. So they, they, they decide who, who effectively who governs the BBC, not who runs it on a daily basis, but yeah. nonetheless, they, the government of the day, broadly, broadly, broadly decides what political path the BBC is going to go down. Not directly, of course, that would be simply stupid. It wouldn't be tolerated. The BBC would rise up in whatever, or the people yeah. who work for it would rise up and so on and so on. But nonetheless, if you, A, if you are responsible for how much money 
an organization gets. In yeah. this case, it's the license fee. And if you are responsible for giving the top job to um, the, uh, the person you most favor politically. And it's a pity. I think we should have a completely different way of deciding who is going to be the... Talk to us about this, John. Talk. What is an alternative model for the BBC structure that you feel could ensure that there are none of these kinds of... Well, the easiest and most obvious is to have a cross-party. If, if it's going to be done by politicians, mm -hmm. you have a cross-party um, majority. and it, it has to be that in the... I'm not suggesting pretty thought House of Commons. That would be unruly and unworkable and yeah. clunky and all the rest of it. But you should at least have a balanced committee. And I think it has to be... I don't think it should be a single individual. No single individual is free of prejudice, by yeah. definition. Uh, so I think that's probably how... So, John, sorry, just can mm. I just... Am I right in under, in what you've inferred here that is to say that for as long as you were at the BBC, there was some sort of government interference happening all the well, time? It, is, that, is that right? Interference is the wrong word in a sense, isn't it? This is mere bit nitpicking, but um, pressure, of course there was pressure. Can, can, give us an example. Well, pre oh, <laughs> Iraq. Do, 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 you want, do, do you want Iraq yeah, uh, yes, as yeah. an example? Yeah. yeah, of course. I had, and I'm more than happy to talk about them, obviously, endless exchanges with Blair about in Iraq. I did more interviews with him than anybody else, and I did the longest interview after the Chilcot, the only proper interview. I'm proper in the sense that a long interview the day after the Chilcot inquiry. I only did one interview, that was with me. Yeah. And it, instead of the usual 15 minutes, I, I crashed at the sport, for God's sake. <laughs> we, we had dropped at the sport on the Today programme. Woohoo, are we? Um, and and we, I did him for about 35 minutes, and, um, uh, and that was... Uh, that was, um, I think, I hope, um, revealing in all sorts of ways. Um, but what Blair never did was personally say, um, you're not being fair with me about X, Y, or Z. What Alistair Campbell often did was, well, I can't repeat the words because you'd have to, but, but you, can, you, can, you can guess what Alistair Campbell did. We're, a, podca we're a podcast, John. You can say whatever you fucking want. What, 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 well, I tell you what, then, the words usually began with F and ended with K. Sometimes, um, but, but um, this is a very unsatisfactory answer to your question because it is a very, very difficult question to answer. I feel with. like you're giving me a politician's answer to my <laughs> question, which and was, I regard that as what the is an example instance, so I'm going to of walk political out interference in how the BBC could question Iraq? <laughs> um, it never got to me. Right. And that's okay. That's that's that I think is the important thing. So, John, I know we are running out of time, but before we go, I'm uh, not. I've got all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you because you know, at the beginning of this interview, you said you can't ask questions on behalf of a listener. There's far too many listeners of too many demographics, and I completely understand that. That's human limitations, and if you start doing that, you end up not being authentic, and you know that's probably even worse for a journalist. Like, follow your instincts, but. Because of the lack of plurality of journalists, they tend to be cut from the same cloth uh, economically, demographically. I think there is a fair criticism. I think there is. Well, exactly. I mean, you came up on local news. Yeah, I, well, I was a dirt poor background. kid. I was a slum kid. I left school at 15. Outdoor laboratory, you wipe your bottom in the newspaper because you couldn't afford toilet paper. And I came up the hard way. But that story can't happen anymore. That, that mobility me, is gone. That worries me a lot. Yeah. That worries what, me a lot. That, what are you doing? Like, I, well, I, oh, I, I mean, because, because you don't want... I didn't go to university. And interestingly, there was another kid. He just died the other day. He was a very, very good friend of mine, as it turns out, who was also born 
we were born in Splot, a, a, a slum district of Cardiff. And Norman, Norman Rees, his name was, was born in Splot, a few streets away from me. He also left school at 15. We had absolutely you know, no books in the house, no nothing. You know, we were dirt poor. Norman didn't even have a father. At least I had a father. He'd been blind as a child, but he nonetheless worked his ass off. I ended up with Norman Rees in the Oval Office of the White House with the President of the United States sitting opposite us. And Norman leaned across to me and whispered, not bad for two kids from Splot, eh, <laughs> oh. And what are the odds Lovely. against that? I mean, the odds are just phenomenal. The two kids who had lived literally streets apart, one became, the at that point, Washington correspondent of the BBC, the other one became Washington correspondent of ITN, the two greatest broadcasting organisations in the country at the time. What are the odds against that happening? What are the odds of one of us succeeding in doing that today? I think probably zero. Yeah. So we end up with a, a skewed demographic picture and and that that worries me a lot i do think we should have some working class melvin bragg of all people has sounded off recently because he was a working class kid himself his father ran a pub um but you know working class had and all that but um he made the point as well that the bbc doesn't know any longer how to treat poor people they caricature people who didn't go to university or didn't do this or didn't do that because they they want everybody to be like themselves. That worries me. It worries oh, me a lot. I completely agree with that. I think even, even you know, I mean, I, similar to you, you know, working class background and, you know, and even despite being on the left, I still see a patronisation of people who mm. are, you know, didn't go to university, mm. who struggle, single parents, like the sort of coded slut shaming, all that. So you still mm. see it. It does happen. So for me, I feel like the lack of diversity in journalism is a crisis for journalism. Because the lack of class diversity. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Class yes. diversity. But I mean, yeah. class diversity interacts with other things, doesn't it? Like of it does. disability, yeah, race, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. I just, yeah. I just, I was just interested to hear from you if you felt the same as me that that is a problem Completely. for representing, you know, in, an, in, in the moment where you face that politician and you, as you say, you speak from the heart, if everyone's heart is privately educated, there is going to be a problem with that journalism, no? Precisely. Okay. I couldn't agree more. And, and is there an issue when, you know, people who went to the same school and university as Rishi yep. Sunak are now sat across from Rishi Sunak? Yep. Is that yeah. a process of accountability? What a coincidence. Yeah. Mm. Would you come out of retirement just, just for Rishi? Just to, you know... What to do in one last prime minister? God one last no! Job. God no! <laughs> what would be the point? Because, like we've said, you need people who are not from this world. I tell you what, there are an awful lot of very, very good interviewers out there. Um, I mean, yeah, and and the idea that you need an old fart like me to come. Oh come on! Don't you? Don't, that do is you, not false modesty. That is simply. Do you a not have a little fact. moment where you're like, oh, I could have had him, Boris? You, he skipped you on today. Come well, on. I did do oh. one or two with uh, with Boris, but, when, so. but not when he was prime minister, right? Is that right? He no, he. No. Do you think that no, he he avoided me? <laughs> was he scared? <laughs> he timed it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do remember trying to do a proper interview with him when he was down in Devon the morning they launched the bus with the lies on the side of it. Do you remember the uh, the Brexit? Yes, is the yes, height, yes, of, yes. height of the Brexit campaign only yeah. a few years ago. And they did the bus, you know. And um, and he was the 810 interview, the big interview on him. And, and I was, and he was down in Devon or wherever it was. And he was down. Um, and when we got to the point where I was obviously going to give him and started, I had started on the question that one would have hoped, I hoped anyway, was, was 
deliver a certain message to the listener, let's yeah. put it like that. Um, Fucked up with that bus, mate. Was that the question? Bus, something, yeah. <laughs> what about that bleeding bus? Yeah, something like that. And, and Boris did his... Sorry, what? John... What did you say, John? 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 Oh, 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 oh something, something wrong with the line down here. What, what's that? Bollocks. They've got phone lines in Devon. Am I allowed to say the word? But, you but I'm afraid. Um, you know, and it's the kind of stunt he pulled all the time, wasn't it? So I've, and, and, and would I want to come back and interview Boris? Absolutely not. Yeah. No, what, what would be the point? It really wouldn't. And no, damn it, there are... Ugh, I think the standard of interviewing is the quality of interviewing. Political interviewing is good. Yeah. It's very good, yeah. Um, so yeah. you're happy to just, you know, you're out of it now. You're like, leave it to other people. I need my peace and calm. I, I thought I'd want to go back into it, but but I'm I'm doing different things. I'm singing. I know. I've, oh. I've joined a choir. I don't think I'd say it. didn't know that. I, I know. Well, no. I, I, you know. You, mean, you, what's your range? My, I'm I'm pretty deep bass actually. I I thought I was bass baritone, but but I'm I'm below that. I I can do, and that's one of the. I think it's the only reason they like me in the choir is because not many can do that. You know. <laughs> if, you, if you want me to do some old man river, I can do. <laughs> Paul Robeson is my old man river. Dad. Do you know what's the first time I've sung on a podcast? Oh, but no, I'm not going to do it. Anymore, but, 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 but nonetheless, no, it's can great. We, can I, we find a way to clip, if any of our listeners are DJs, if you could just clip Old Man River from John Humphreys and turn that into some sort of beat. <laughs> I'm very we, happy we to would do Old like Man that. River for you. I can give you the whole of Old Man River. <laughs> any problem at all, I love it. And it suits my voice. But, but no, no, I, I, I got put I, when I was seven years old and my mother my mother sent me and all the other kids in the family to the, the local church choir you know something to do on a Sunday really and the uh, the choir master said after the practice oh, oh John thank you for coming boy but um, I tell you what um, perhaps not come again next week <laughs> he said the thing is you're putting the rest of the boys off <laughs> and you know I, for the next 70 and I mean 70 years I was convinced I couldn't sing a note Aww. I know, but that's that you, you, you have rapped on the air, John, with Charlie Sloth. Oh my God, I did, didn't yeah. I? But that's not singing rapping, is it? By right. definition, it well, um, it's it's still in the musical arena. It's still a musical well. performance, John. Ah, I'd love to hear that again. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> Thank you so much, John Humphreys. Been a great pleasure. And all the funny stories I was going to tell you, we never got around to. Tell you what, teaching grandmother. Um, but, 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 the most memorable, that'll do it. Most memorable interview. Are you telling me what questions to ask? <laughs> no, I'm offering you, I'm offering you, yes. All right, yes, okay, okay. All right, all right. Well, look, you know, I'll, I'll take it. Well, no, any, any, whatever, 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 whatever. Um, you've, you've interviewed all the, the kind of the big names, all the pyramid stage of politicians. Um, you know, even Margaret Thatcher. Oh, yes, oh, yes. Oh, you've yes. got to have a story about her. She was my first big political interview ever. I mean, I'd done lots before her, but I was on the Today programme, my first big interview, and on the Today programme, she was running again to be Prime Minister. We were a few days away from the election, and I got the interview. I'd only been on the programme a couple of months, and I got the 10 past interview with her. Whoa, wow, the big deal. I was wetting myself, but I thought, I know, I'll do something really clever. Nobody's ever thought of this before because we talked to her about the economy, which was disastrous and all that sort of thing. But I thought, I'm going to be clever. I'm going to talk to her about her religion, about her beliefs. Mm. Yeah, good, eh? Good, eh? Because what I would do is um, I would um, say to her, um, you talk 
about um, Christianity uh, at great length and its virtues and so on and so on. What is the essence of Christianity? And then, in my little head, my little brain, I committed the cardinal sin, really. I persuaded myself that I knew exactly what she would say in answer mm -hmm. to that. And what she would say would be something like love or charity. <laughs> Perfectly normal. I would then, big, another big mistake, I would then say, ah, you talk about love, you talk about <laughs> charity. How dare you look at the country, look at the state of the country, economy is collapsing, children going to school, and shoes on their feet, people starving in the gutters, and you talk about love. She would be devastated. Yeah. She would collapse into a heap and she would apologise and resign on the spot. <laughs> I would become the hero of the I'm grateful nation. This journal dream you're I <laughs> would be the hero of a grateful Do you know what she said? Well, one word. Choice. The perfect word. Wow. I realised in the space of about a quarter of a millisecond that I could not have, I just, I, oh dear God, I, I, I prayed for an earthquake <laughs> or something or a lightning bolt to strike Broadcasting House. I was utterly devastated. I never recovered from it. What did wow. you do? Were you just like, okay, so, cool. But you think about it, it is the perfect choice, isn't it? But isn't it the perfect choice? Yeah, if yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, the perfect answer, choice. Yeah. Because yeah. you choose whether to be good or bad, whether to be moral the or immoral. Market, whether we... The market of everything. Yeah, yeah precisely. Perfect. So there we are. Thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> <laughs> Humiliation is a word we know. I never recovered. I interviewed her many times after that, and I never recovered. I don't. I don't think I ever did a really good interview with her after that. <laughs> oh, we've well, done a great interview with us, John Humphrey. Well, so thank you so much. Thank for you your so time. much. Your time. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you both. <laughs>because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit, credit to the people. Skip the waiting room. TireRack.com now offers convenient mobile tire installation in select areas. Simply shop TireRack.com for your next set of tires, and at checkout, choose Tire Rack Mobile Tire Installation. An expertly trained technician will arrive with your tires and install them on-site, at home, at the office, wherever you are. You'll spend less time waiting and more time doing the things you enjoy. TireRack.com. The way tire buying should be. You're off tomorrow, aren't you? To see uh, England play Australia in the second Ashes Test. That's right. I'm going to Lords, um, and um, uh, you know, as a cricket fan, I'm excited about it. Um, on Wednesday, as we record, uh, a couple of protesters were ejected from Lords. Uh, protesters from Just Stop Oil, um, who were trying to make a point about the climate crisis, have been frog marched off the field. One by the England cricketer Johnny Bairstow, and I mean, there seemed to be a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of cheers in the crowd for those protesters being evicted oh, from the game. Gosh. All I will say is it's going to be very difficult to play cricket when the planet is on fire. I've seen the Mad Max films. Not a lot of cricket happening Not in those movies. A lot of cricket. So I just, you know, as a lover but, of the but, game, but, I mean, doesn't... As, a, as a lover of the game, I'd say maybe we should be listening to what the climate protesters have to say. But doesn't that speak to arguably the fact of this major report that's come out that said that English and Welsh cricket is full of elitism? Classism, sexism, racism, it's widespread. Yeah, it was, you, you know, it was the full 
fruit machine. Every different type of (laughs) prejudice was represented. The prejudice fruit machine. Yeah, it was, was, you know, it was all of it. It was classism, sexism, racism. Um, the and it, it was hard data supporting the claims. Eighty-seven uh, percent of respondents with Pakistani and Bangladeshi heritage, eighty-two percent with Indian heritage, and seventy-five percent of all black respondents re- reported encountering discrimination in the game. Listen, I understand that it's going to be very, very hard for people listening to this to not instinctively respond by saying, "Oh, cricket's racist," <laughs> the most obviously racist game. In the world, and I am a huge cricket fan. Even I will admit that when they play in all white, if I may quote my own stand-up, uh, it looks like a, a smart, casual meeting of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> I'm sort of aware of the optics around cricket, and I'm aware of this, the extent to which, uh, certainly in England, uh, it's sort of viewed as you know a preserve of uh, upper class, privately educated white men. You know, as a South Asian kid. Cricket was such an important part of my identity. You know, when I was 12 years old, I queued for two and a half hours so that I could meet Brian Lara, the icon of West Indian cricket, at the Debenhams in Oxford Street. And if you, you know, were in that crowd, every single ethnicity was represented. There were black people, white people, Asians. It, it, you know, it, it's... It, it's it is a game for everybody and it should be a game for everybody. And as a sport, which is already, you know, you know, as a sport, it sh- you should be pulling from the widest group of people possible. And it should be a way of making people feel uh, included. And it's and it isn't. And it feels very disheartening to see that, you know, any time there is a racism in sports story, you always come back to this same idea that, Sport should, in theory, be the ultimate example of fairness, where talent and hard work wins out. And sometimes there is an element of luck, and that's fine, and we accept that as part of the game. But you can't look at something as being the ultimate example of fairness when you can see evidence of institutional racism in the organisations that run the game. And so I understand for people that aren't sports fans, sometimes when these things happen, you just think, well, does it matter? And what I would say is, as a sports fan, it, it really does, because I think sport can only ever hold up a mirror to what's going on uh, in society. Uh, and sometimes that mirror is incredibly positive. And what Colin Kaepernick did kind of, res- you know, resounded through the entire world. What Muhammad Ali did resounded through the entire world. And, you know, those are two examples of things where sport has a hugely positive... In Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the Olympics, that, these, these are hugely positive moments because of the unifying power of sport. So when sport can be seen to be dividing people, it feels heartbreaking. And it, as a cricket fan of uh, South Asian ethnicity, the report was absolutely devastating. Um, And, you know, it's incumbent on the authorities behind these games to do something about it. Just as it's incumbent on institutions across societies to do something about it. And, you know, if you want to, if you want to talk about backing up your data with hard evidence, read the fucking report. It's all in there, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know... I'll be at Lords tomorrow and I'm sure I'll enjoy myself, but I'll enjoy myself maybe slightly less than I would have done previously. It's 
time to open up our inbox. So plenty of reaction to our interview with Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester in last week's episode. Lauren has emailed to say, Andy Burnham is a legend to hear someone in politics so clearly speaking their own mind and not trying to appease their party is so refreshing. Even the times he didn't agree with you guys, he presented his alternative viewpoint while still listening to yours. I'd love to see him as prime minister. Uh, Not everybody agreed with that assessment. An anonymous listener actually WhatsApped us and said the following. Whilst the interview with Andy Burnham was lovely and refreshing in many ways, it was disappointing to hear him go from claiming he was finally free to answer questions honestly and in a straightforward manner to flustering and stumbling over his words as he refused to condemn Abu Dhabi's rampant human rights abuses because they built some nice stuff in his city. Wish he'd pushed him harder on that, especially during Pride Month in an awful year for LGBTQ plus people around the world. Um, I agree, probably we should have pushed him harder. Um, I think that, um, yeah, I think that he he was such a brilliant, compelling interview in so many ways. But uh, unfortunately, you know, that is the living definition of sports washing. The fact that the mayor of a city is unable to criticise people because they're pouring money into the city. And it, it does feel... It really does feel concerning, especially with, as you say, their record in human rights and specifically with the LGBTQ plus community. Someone tweeted me as well and that they raised a really interesting point, which was that fundamentally, you know, we're looking at modern slavery in the Gulf states and we're currently going through this period of reckoning in the UK where we look at these kind of historic large buildings and say, well, that was built on slavery and we're having to face up to that this might be something that in 100 years from now we're going to be absolutely disgusted by. Like, can we learn from our history here? Um, Nonetheless, though, back on our (laughs) amazing inbox, I have saved the best till last. Guess who got in touch? It's Chicken Nug Nugs, mate. (laughs) Chicken Nug Nugs is back! At Chicken Nug Nugs. (laughs) They won't tell us their real name, though. Um, They did leave us a message, and that message said... Even reconstituted breaded chicken snacks have a social conscience, my dear friends. I am a simple nugget. I enjoy progressive leftist politics and being dipped into a variety of flavourful dips. Just like leftist politics, I'm best enjoyed in large groups. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is a reference to last week when we read out a very serious, a very heartfelt message that was only undermined by the fact that it came from the user at Chicken Nug Nugs. And at Chicken Nug Nugs continues to uh, display an incredible, articulate sense of their own political and social conscience, but refuses to give any other name other than Chicken Nug Nugs. And, uh, you know, listen, uh, we, <laughs> we we celebrate that. that. Chicken Nug Nugs wasn't the only interesting name that got in no, touch with us no, last no. week. No, well, we talked about Dr. Zayas, didn't we, uh, last yeah. week? Not the one from Planet of the Apes. They also got back in touch. Um, and they wrote, the one time I get a comment of mine mentioned by name is the one time my username is overshadowed by chicken nug nugs. Go figure. In case anyone is interested, Andy Burnham's refreshing honesty fixed my broken soul. And finally, uh, there was a YouTube exchange uh, that was started by AwkwardAtlas5623, who said, if going on a rave with Coco became a Patreon perk, I would sell my kidney so fast. (laughs) People really want to go on a rave with you. I mean, if you're going on a rave with me, I'd keep your kidneys, mate. You need them. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to need those kidneys. Uh, you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducelisting.co.uk or you can even send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 644 572. Internationally, that's plus 44 7514 644 572. If you're new to the show, remember to hit follow on your app and you'll get every new episode 
every week. And if you reply with something serious that engages with the issues on the podcast, and that is absolutely fantastic, and that is exactly what we're after. Also, if you reply seriously and you have a stupid fucking name, <laughs> you'll almost certainly get read out. So bear that in mind. Just bear that in mind. Save the UK is a reduced listing production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Video editing was by Dan Hodgson and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer David Dargahi. The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson, Madeline Harringer and Michael Martinez. Watch us on Pod Save the World's YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter and TikTok where we're at Pod Save the UK or on Instagram through the Crooked Media channel. And hit subscribe for new shows every Thursday on Spotify, Amazon or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.